my husband and I, we were in perpetual state of planning Finn's funeral to plan what seemed to be an inevitable event. And in the meantime, we just tried to make as many memories as possible and enjoy our time together while we could. And it was heartbreaking. My name is Robin Dieterding. I'm a pediatric lung specialist at the University of Colorado at the Children's Hospital in Colorado. And I really have dedicated my career to studying children with diffuse and interstitial lung disease, which we call CHILD as an acronym. Um, interstitial lung disease or CHILD really encompasses over 200 rare conditions that can have varying degrees of impact on livelihood and even mortality. Frequently, these children are impacted with varying degrees of low oxygen, fast breathing, uh, decrease in ability to eat. And so they can have a tremendous impact on the families of these children. They can present at infancy or later in adolescence. So we're going to hear today about a remarkable journey of a family that uh, Carly Gilbert is going to talk about related to her son, Finn. This journey involves one of the diseases that has to do with the genetic condition of child. Many of these do involve genetic conditions. It's important for people to understand that, that ILD can have genetic backgrounds. So adults with ILD with genetic conditions may have children at risk. Carly's journey is uh, started 13 years ago with Finn. So I'm excited to bring you this journey. I'd like to welcome to the Journeys Through the Pulmonary Fibrosis podcast, uh, Carly. Carly, can you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Hello. Hi. Yes. Thank you very much for having me today. So I'm Carly, Carly Gilbert, and I'm mom to Finn, who's now age 13. And he's been diagnosed with um, a child interstitial lung disease caused um, by ABCA3 mutation. So his condition is a, a genetic based. I also run the Child UK Patient Organization, and this was founded in 2010. And alongside this, I'm now a rare disease researcher based at the University of Liverpool. And I'm investigating the psychosocial impact on various areas of child. Through your lived experience of being a caretaker for a child uh, with ILD and a researcher, can you give the audience some understanding of the disease that your child has had? Yes, well, um, my understanding has changed and developed over the years. I have no medical training whatsoever. So initially when I received Finn's diagnosis, it actually didn't make sense for a very long time about what Finn's condition is. So for child itself, uh, you know, you've given a great explanation. Um, and similarly, I understand that it is an umbrella term for a group of lung conditions where, to put simply, um, oxygen has difficulty in crossing over into the bloodstream. But now that I understand that there are various ways that these difficulties can occur. So as explained, there are multiple child conditions, but for Finn's specific condition, the protein um, surfactant ABCA3, um, as I say, is a genetic condition. It's autosomal recessive. And the ABCA3 protein governs the transportation of pulmonary surfactant around the lungs. So Finn has a genetic condition. And yeah. uh, what was your first experience with the symptoms uh, that you saw in Finn that caused you to be concerned? Well, um, I didn't see any. So he was 
um, he was born by a C-section and I was very, very poorly with the pregnancy and I was already hospitalized. So at 37 weeks gestation, Finn was whipped out of me. And unfortunately, <laughs> as, a, as the result of the procedure, Finn suffered a bilateral pneumothorax. So I went to the hospital ward after the surgery to get settled in, but he never arrived to me. And it was a keen-eyed paediatrician who noticed something was not quite right with Finn. And he was immediately taken to ICU. And uh, I'll be honest and say I don't know the specifics of his symptoms. That has never been shared with me. Um, all that I know is that he was given surfactant, he was ventilated, and we were told he, he would not survive. Um, and the reason why none of this was shared with me at the time was, unfortunately, there was no one ever around to ask questions to, no doctors or nurses. And yeah, sadly, we were very much kept in the dark. Well, that is very traumatic to undergo uh, what you went, a C-section, and then not see your child and not understand what's happening, mm -hmm. let alone uh, have an understanding of what, what that course might look like. So I hear you saying that it was, it sounded very frightening and scary and you were kind of in the dark. How, how did you think about this or how did you start to approach this? I'd say we just on autopilot, um, the little sort of snippets of advice that we, we did get, um, we just sort of had to sort of roll with it all. Um, so what actually happened was the surfactant therapy at birth um, pieced his lungs together. And he went through the whole ICU, PICU, SCABOO process. And he was sent home. With, we didn't have any reason for why the pneumothorax um, occurred, but he was sent home at four weeks and he was on oxygen. Um, but wow, <laughs> when we got him home, it was the feeding issues um, oh, yes. that were really significant apart from the oxygen itself. That was a breeze. Um, but to cut a very long story short, Finn could not keep anything down. We were feeding him via bottle, um, what he would bring up everything and more. And it was just constant. So um, when we got to his first hospital checkup appointment, which was about six weeks after he was discharged from Skibu, um, he was skin and bone. But we were just sort of forced to feed him every two to three hours. Um, and it was one of Finn's uh, respiratory doctors. Um, he just looked at him and said, we have a very, very sick baby. We're taking him in for investigations. And um, we, we were there for a, a long period of time. And it was during those investigations that, yeah, we found that it was um, ABCA3, protein surfactant um, diagnosis. And when we received that diagnosis, um, Oh, we had no clue or understanding of the disease or its implications. And we went home and we Googled it. And at that time, you know, 20, sorry, 2009, um, literature was very, very low on, on ABCA3 and um, surfactant protein deficiencies. And all that we saw was, you know, sadly, you know, death. That was mm -hmm. in, in the future for him. Well, that can be that can be devastating and scary. And you're right. Thirteen years ago, we didn't have a lot of information. This has been an evolving area that continues to evolve. 
about what happens, what the life course is, and um, what what treatment options could be. So you were that diagnosis came at the very beginning of uh, what we we were beginning to understand about APCA three or ABCA three. Some people might say, and um, how how scary and lonely that experience must have been for your family and as a caregiver. How how did you deal with that? Well. I think well, initially when we went home and Googled it, I think it was on the sixth page that I came across another little girl with ABCA3. And that led me to the US group. Mm-hmm. And from that, we were able to make connections with other families from US internationally. So that was, that was a wonderful experience to know that we weren't alone. And that gave us sort of strength then to set up our own little organization here in the UK and try and um, build a community. So that's essentially what, what we did. Um, but my feelings around that time, I would say that really I didn't have any. <laughs> I, everything was very muted. And um, mm-hmm. I don't mind sharing, but... Yeah, the only time I could really show emotion was like when I was in the shower. Mm-hmm. I, I just let everything out and just sob. And um, there was no real opportunities for outlet. And especially since I had um, two other boys as well, a, a little family at home, you just have to fight. You just have to keep smiling and keep fighting and just hope, take each day as it comes. It is a incredibly difficult journey, and Carly, your your bravery and uh, and how you've dealt with it has been so impressive. One of the things you mentioned is connection to other families. That finding other people who are traveling this journey was was helpful, and the the worldwide community that really you jumped in to help start to bring people together is helpful. Do you think that? Describe how that helps families. Well, I think the first major thing is, as I say, it's the knowing that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, really powerful. I think secondly, we educate one another. Um, that is another powerful tool that we have. Um, we, you know, we appreciate that we are not medical experts, but we've had to train ourselves to understand the language. Um, we help each other in terms of um, everyone has their own skill and we try and collect those skills together and pool them together somehow. Um, so we, and we, we do obviously give anecdotal evidence of you know, our own experiences, but we also try and collect a lot of scientific research as well and, and base a lot of our information off that and, and share that as widely as we can. One of the things you said, Carly, that is really important and different for young children and certainly infants with this journey is this impact on almost everything that has to be done. If you can't breathe well, it's hard to feed them. Mm-hmm. And that then, I mean, babies need to eat to grow. It's such an emotional experience just to try to get the baby to gain weight. Was that part of your journey? Yes, definitely. And thank you for asking that because um, that was our own real understanding um, of knowing how to help them so we need we were told he needed energy he needed calories he needed to grow so that was our complete focus and priority um so I slept on the couch and my husband and I would take turn to feed him 
and it was very intense. Um, so Finn was put on enteral feeding. So at first it was NG tubes up the nose and then some medications to try and keep everything down and, mm. and mobile. And then over time he did go to um, the gastrostomy tube feeding. Um, so to do this, I, we became extremely regimented. Um, I would write down feed times, volumes, if he vomited, um, diarized everything. And I should add, and I don't mind sharing this, but I think it's actually part of my nature. Um, do have sort of, it helps if you have some obsessional traits, which to help <laughs> be organized. Um, so it was natural just to keep fighting, keep going, um, be organized and just really fight hard to get those calories down into them, let those lungs grow. That was, that was our importance. And I'd say another hard aspect for that, while we're doing that, having our day 24 hours a day, you know, focused around, you know, feeds every two to three hours was the impact on our other children as well and caring yes. for them, yes, fitting their needs around Finn. And they were four and 10 at the time, and it must have had a major impact on them. And so, yeah, it wasn't just Finn, but it was also trying to keep our unit, our other boys safe and happy as well. Right. A chronic illness in, in a child, uh, one with the child disease you described after three does place a lot of extraordinary stresses on the family just because of the care needs. So can you describe a little bit more the stress it placed uh, on your family? And you mentioned the other children too. Uh, it, it's a family affair. So I should really sort of quickly mention to complicate matters alongside the ABCA 3, at 15 months of age, Finn was diagnosed with a Wilms tumour, kidney oh cancer. God, yeah. <laughs> and luckily, unbelievably, that was stage one. And just before the diagnosis, Finn's oxygen requirements were increasing. And this is indicative of um, progressive lung disease. So we did have conversations about lung transplantation, mm -hmm. but death was the prospect and that surrounded us all the time. So Warren, my husband and I, we were in perpetual state of planning his funeral. It, that was always there. And we had to save money back as well to plan what seemed to be an inevitable event. And in the meantime, we just tried to make as many memories as possible and enjoy our time together while we could and it was heartbreaking but oddly beautiful mm -hmm. sort of at the same time I'm sorry if I'm not describing that well but um so when the Wilms tumor came we thought we'd have to plan his funeral sooner and um, we didn't know the impact of the cancer treatment so with it being stage one um he very luckily just needed a nephrectomy he just had one kidney removed and 11 rounds of chemotherapy and that was um vincristine and dactinomycin and i have to say like within a week his oxygen requirements halved dramatically and you know went down further and further um and then something happened you might know more being a medical expert but truly we believe this is what saved him and after that treatment he was a different child he was alert yeah. He wasn't pain, he became alive and we could like really see it in his eyes. So to go back to your original question, sorry, and wow. how it impacted on us, it took a long time through all of that. 
and the continued feeding issues, the development issues that Finn um, had. So, for example, he never learned how to crawl. Um, it was things like, you know, lifting himself up. He couldn't do it. He didn't have the strength to. He didn't have the upper body strength to it. So there was a lot of sort of developmental milestones that he missed out on as well. Um, and if you don't mind me sharing, yeah, eventually um, I, I did have a, a breakdown um, about four years into to, to Finn's um, condition. And that that was very, very hard. Well, it's a the journey of having really significant severe lung disease, cancer diagnosis on top of that, which we don't know that that's related at all to the ILD, but both those journeys are so difficult and managing as a caregiver, even with good support, I don't think it's unusual uh, for a caregiver to have, you know, to have stress and have, have days and times where they just break down at all. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very common thing um, in, in what you've had to handle because it does take, it does take a village to raise a child. And when you break down, somebody else in the family picks up, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> great. Great. Well, can you give us, so that, you know, Finn had a, a, diff, a difficult start from the very beginning you had kind of this diagnostic, it took a while to get to the diagnosis. Uh, and even then the data and the life course for this was scary and confusing. Uh, and and he needed a lot of care. So, so where are you at t- today? Kind of where did that course from the beginning travel to today with Finn? I'd say we had to change basically everything in our lives. Um, We've changed the way we work, my husband and I, for example, our social lives have taken a hit. Um, I suppose sort of what keeps us going is, you know, working with the child community, trying to support others. Um, I honestly don't know if what I'm doing makes an impact. I hope it does, but we love doing it. We love making these connections. And if we can just help nudge the child field just a teensy bit forward with what we do and support clinicians like yourself and researchers and raise awareness. And that's, that's good enough for me. Um, but my ultimate, ultimate goal is for Finn to live a normal life and not have ABCA3 raise its head again, which we, we are expecting it to, um, you know, as he does hit adult life, mm-hmm. as you're explaining with um, the way lungs develop and grow. And we don't know when, but when it does, we want to be ready and we want to have some treatment or a cure in place for when that time comes again. What kind of things can Finn do now? So Finn, he, he's on nighttime oxygen. He hates sports. He really does. <laughs> he, can't, he can walk. He, he can walk well, um, but he gets so tired. Stamina and fatigue are real major issues for him. And um in terms, he he just loves he loves gaming. Anything sort of sat there and um, watching films, his toys. Um, so really, he he lives a, a, a very normal life. And um, feeding is still a massive massive issue for him. Mm-hmm. He never actually because learning to eat is a skill that you have to learn to do. He has never actually learned. So he still has very soft foods. He gets very uncomfortable um, 
with textures and swallowing. I'm still a little bit of a risk, I think. So um, these, the, I, I like to think of them as scars almost to what could have been, you know, because it could have been very, very different. Mm -hmm. So just sort of very, very grateful that it has, you know, turned, you know, that he is with us in the way that right. he is. Right. Well, in that journey, what, what were some of the, were the rewarding times where you felt like you've, you've turned the corner, you've, you've made a difference in what was happening with your son and, and what were those, if you could share? Yeah. Um, rewarding. It's just seeing him grow and love life the way he does. Cause he's really funny. He, he's obsessed with Tom Hanks. I never would have anticipated that. Yeah. He's obsessed. Uh, so yeah, just that's the main rewarding part. And us being a, a family unit and a very, very strong one as well. And seeing my um, older two boys have so much empathy for not just for Finn, because obviously what we've been through, but for the world around them and understanding that, you know, life's not always um, what it seems for people. So I really do think that um, being on a sort of caregiving experience, <clears throat> it changes people and their perspectives on life. And I'd say that that's the most rewarding thing to have that outlook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, they can, they can understand what you all have been through and they can see Finn and, and, his experiences that you all really helped create for him. And he did himself too. I'm sure he's a fighter. Yes. Yeah, he, he is. Um, yeah, he, he really is. It's, um, it's, it's awe inspiring really to see how resilient, resilient, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Finn and obviously other, these, you know, these other children are as well. Mm -hmm. Well, what is it you wish you, had known when you started your journey yeah that's a hard one because <laughs> there wasn't much to know when you started I, I think we've come a ways in the diagnostic journey but still the natural history is not well understood for many of these conditions um I'd just say on a personal basis really about what I should have done and I'm, I'm not a person that lives with the regrets I'm not that kind of person but I suppose the main thing is to try and be more open and ask for help. Um, and I thought it did back then, but you don't want to be a burden a lot of the time. Um, so I think the main thing for me was what I should have done back then if I'd known that to now would be to ask for help when I need it and learning to be a little bit more sort of vulnerable uh, because being vulnerable sort of lets people in. That's good insight. It's hard to do mm. uh, when you're just trying to survive the day with all the care that you had to give, but it, the remarkable journey has, has um, really been is, is now sounds like embracing life with some limitations, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, enjoying things. But what, what does research, you know, mean to you still in the field? I mean, he's improved, but what will research uh, bring to you and your family? So the first one would be, um, as I say, so even though he's medically stable at the moment um, for, for his Ab ABCA3, we do know that it will progress again at some point. Have we had that conversation with him? We have. We've tried to. I don't think he quite sort of understands. We try and get him to 
take responsibility for um, certain aspects of his health. We're building that up because he's only 13. But we are looking at transition within the next few years. And then I think that's going to be a real important time for him. Uh, so in terms of research for us personally, I think that that's where we would like to sort of look at saving off any potential issues um, with his lungs. Uh, and yeah, just try and get him um, educated about the condition and and long-term health implications as well of what he can do to help himself, if that's through diet, if that's through exercise. All aspects like that would be incredibly helpful for us. Mm-hmm. What hope do you have? Does research bring you hope? It does, yes, because um, even though we'd all love to have a crystal ball and looking to extend ourselves out into the future. Um, it, it, it really does um, in terms of having those answers for if and when that time comes. And I think the difficulty is because child is so new, it is such a rare condition as well. Um, sometimes it's difficult to get that activity in the field to be noticed. And I know that um, researchers and clinicians as yourself are doing incredible, incredible work to try and move this forward and not only support those who are newly diagnosed, but also, you know, the long-term effects looking beyond into, into adult care, as you say, mm-hmm. these are going to be, you know, young adults one day and let's get them there as best possible. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, thank you and your family have done an amazing job. Well, it's your, your research focus uh, is very interesting thinking about the psychosocial impact of disease. Um, tell us a little bit more about your perspective uh, related to your research focus and kind of your journey and how that comes together. Essentially what happened was um, I was a civil servant at the time when Finn was born and we um, created the Child UK community and we extended out to um, other organizations internationally, such as the, the US organization. But I, I had this feeling deep down that really I needed to get educated. I had obviously the education, but not um, in terms of policy, um, medical research, education that I needed to try and start collecting people's perspectives together to try and share um like community issues that you know that we were experiencing and being part of um, the child community or any sort of rare disease community you can see issues that aren't being picked up sometimes in the literature so for an example for that was like my first piece of research that was it was a basic survey sent out to the child community it was not validated in any way and we got it published in the end um, as it was the first piece of literature to show that there was a link between um, feeding issues and these were significant and prevalent within child conditions. So that was published and that was exciting. And so that was the sort of first journey, if you like, in, in research and trying to ask these questions and show links between the community themselves and bring it to researchers and child clinicians. So um, I've been through university um, 
I got myself educated. I'm on my final year of my PhD at the moment. That's um, great. Yeah. And so, and the, the main subject areas that I'm looking at and that I'm writing up at the moment was, is really um, about all different aspects of child and, and child life. So, for example, one of them is on um, experiences of transition here within the UK, what that experience is like and asking young adults and their parents to explain that process and how they feel and if they feel that there's any um, recommendations um, that they can give to others to empower others on their transition journey as well. Um, another is um, connecting with um, children and parents and asking them about what research they would like, actually giving them a voice to see what their priorities are and what is acceptable for them. And then another is in the area of fatigue, that experience of fatigue and interstitial lung disease, and just really explaining how that impacts on them and their quality of life. So, yeah, I've got a lot of work on and hopefully it will make an impact and, and support the researchers and child clinicians in terms of understanding and getting a, a greater picture of that. That's terrific. Well, thank you for doing that. And uh, again, you have taken your journey and translated that into advocacy and learning uh, that are, that really going to extend help to so many others. So it's quite a compliment all that you've done. Well, how can people advocate for more research? You know, this idea of research when you have a child impacted uh, can be very broad. It, research can be, uh, sounds scary, uh, but what about the idea of research linking it to better care? I think it's twofold. So I think a lot of the families are tired and they've been waiting a long time, but then there is this anticipation and excitement that it will occur, it will happen for them. So in terms of how they can help us, we just really want them to get involved and to talk to us, to like share their experience and give time to the community to, to, to obviously um, enable their views and experiences to be shared and heard. And it's never, it's never been about fundraising and money. It's always been about support and moving child forward. So um, being a rare small disease charity, we're never going to make large sums of money, and it was never about that. Um, but building a strong community definitely is. And if we can be there for researchers who can get grants for meaningful research and they can get their funders in to support that, you know, we'd like them to know that we as a community are here and we're passionate about changing child and we can do whatever is needed to help support that process as well. There's a lot of uh, excitement and hope that I think can come forward through research that the, the child community will need to be uh, a part of to have it be successful. So your work and advocacy and all the child foundation platforms uh, become very important to get to this next next phase it really is. We're all in this together. Mm -hmm. uh, but the families have really had to live with, uh, live with creating the success uh, and battling through the hardships that all of this has, uh, has really uh, come to them. But the outcome has been watching your child uh, grow uh, and still be able to experience life in their family, it sounds like. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's ex- it, it is an exciting time. We've we've waited for ages. <laughs> <We're> still- now, <laughs> there's but- still so much to know. I mean, um, if we do know some things about the history of uh, ABCA three and APCA three uh, now that could have maybe provided some encouragement had you known it then. So these are some ways that research and registries help and connecting to families help because um, for example, I, you know, I have a family that I've seen in the last month, new family and having them talk and hear the journeys of other families becomes so it provides hope Mm. to get through those hard days. It does. And and that's one of the things as well, where um, as a, a small patient organization we need to keep evolving as well because essentially you know our story was you know 12 13 years ago and a lot has moved on since then so what we need is new families stepping up stepping in to take over and and give that perspective of what things are like now as well so you know from an advocacy point of view you know we still have a lot to to do to support newer families coming through to show that and understand their experience Mm-hmm. What would you tell a family, a newly diagnosed family uh, with child? Uh, what words of advice would you give them? I'd say try and learn about the condition as much as possible. I know that that's difficult with child being really complex. I appreciate that. Um, so ask questions and be a bother. <laughs> be a bother um, and connect with others. And as we say, just knowing that you're not alone is, is so powerful. Um, and yeah, gives hope. Yes. Those families um, that are not going to take no for an answer, who are going to find those solutions, who are going to ask questions uh, to make sure their child's well cared for, makes a difference. Makes a difference uh, for the medical community to hear from the families. Uh, care is better when everybody's pushing together. So I think that's real important. Real important. Well, Carly, what other final things would you like to tell uh, the community? You, you've been on a journey with your son, Finn, and with your family. There are many different types of child. Some are not so devastatingly hard from infancy, but all of them have this common um, idea that there's a, a, a disease or an illness, and that can weigh heavy on children and families. Any any com- final comments to people that you'd like to leave them with? Just really keep fighting. That's that's it. As I say, just keep asking questions, connect, keep fighting, um, and you're not alone. We are here. Reach out, and so happy to connect with you when you do. Great, great. So as you've heard uh, Carly talk about, there are child foundations in the UK. Uh, in the U.S., in Australia, in Spain, and around the world that are present to help families navigate the process, ask questions, connect with uh, experts from around the world, uh, and all of that support can make a difference. And, and those families can extend from primary parents, grandparents, all types of families who want to support uh, children with these diseases. So thank you, Carly, on describing and really being very vulnerable with a very difficult uh, journey that you've been through. Finn has been blessed with uh, quite a family, and he sounds like quite a character. I don't think I'd want to uh, play a video game with him. He sounds good. Uh, but uh, 
So I appreciate everybody tuning in and hearing really about uh, pulmonary fibrosis from a pediatric angle. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and uh, like it if you thought it was good. Thank you.